0: Uh, We'll kind of do a recap of what we talked about in this section from verse, uh, we'll just start at 24 on recapping. Uh, Paul begins in verse 24 with something very interesting, which if you don't know your theology at all, if you don't know what's going on, it might be a very shocking statement. What is that shocking statement in verse 24 if you don't know how to understand it correctly? Well, that actually, yeah, that too, that as well. So there are two things, excuse me, two things that are shocking. First is rejoicing in sufferings. Thank you, Israel. What's the second? Yeah, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, none of y'all gave the possibility that Paul is teaching that the atonement is inadequate, which is good. None of y'all gave that answer. But for some, if you don't know your theology and you haven't rounded Out your view with the rest of Colossians, some might go to that view, uh, misunderstanding what Paul's saying, but what is it actually saying, that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Right, there's nothing lacking in his atoning work, so it can't be that, so what is Paul referring to? I think so. Yeah, it really has to do with the gospel going forward. Christ's death was perfectly sufficient for the atonement for the salvation of his people. But Christ dies, rises again, ascends into heaven, and then who does he work through to then spread the gospel abroad? Yeah, the church in general, and then here specifically we're talking about Paul. But yes, the church is then to carry on the mission of spreading that gospel. And so part of that also involves, for Paul specifically, as the apostle to the who? What people group? Gentiles. So that expansion, that going forth of the gospel out. So that's what Paul is referring to, is that his ministry is going forward through suffering. Through the suffering that is required in order to be uh, taking the gospel to the Gentiles, because that brings persecution, uh, that brings just the difficulties of travel, That brings the difficulties of he is wearing out his body over time for this purpose. So in every way you can think of just about he is suffering for the sake of the gospel. So that's what he's talking about here. Uh, Any questions about that part of the recap? All right, well, moving forward through the recap. uh, The very end of verse 24, why does he do that? Why would he suffer in that way to spread the gospel? For whom does he suffer? Yeah, the body of Christ, which is the church. Um, And then he goes on to talk about how he became a minister of that, how Christ appointed him and gave him his stewardship. Uh, And the stewardship is this mission of making the word known. And then verse 26, we get to this big word that's mentioned four times in this section uh, that encompasses a lot of different things. Uh what is this word in verse 26? We talked a lot about it last week. Mystery. mystery. Yeah. So what's the mystery? First look at it in verse 26. How is the mystery described here? Right, and you got the you got the two parts perfectly. So it wasn't revealed, now it is. All right? That's good. Verse 27, it says mystery again. And why don't we actually go ahead and read 27 through 29 and get the passage in front of us before we continue our review. Someone be willing to read that 27 through 29. All right, thank you. So we see the first two occurrences of mystery in twenty six and twenty seven, and we'll get to the other two in the first five verses of chapter two. But what else is the mystery in chapter? In uh, excuse me, chapter one, verse twenty seven. Christ in you, right? Now look at the end of verse two in chapter two and see what the mystery is there. Well, no, look at the end of verse 2. What is the mystery? Yeah, Christ. So is Christ in you? Now it's Christ. Uh, And actually, I've made a mistake telling you they're all in that little section. The last mystery statement in Colossians is all the way in chapter 4, verse 3. So I'll read that to you. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. So there it's just more broadly the gospel. So mystery can cover quite a few things, but it always is Christ being revealed and his gospel going forth. That's always what we're talking about with mystery. Alright, any question on recap or anything else y'all, uh, are fuzzy on before we really dive into 28 and 29? Alright, well hearing none and seeing no hands, I'm going to reread verse 28. So him we proclaim, who's the him? Right, so him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Okay, let's start with that. So we're preaching Christ, we're proclaiming Christ, we're heralding Christ. That's what the Greek word can mean, all those different things. Uh, and then there's two things we do that describe what that proclamation is. How is Christ proclaimed? Just on the phrase we, phrases we just read. Warning. And teaching. Why do we need to warn? What are we warning about? Okay, against false teachings, good. And Paul is ramping up, well, Paul and Timothy, they're ramping up to address some heretical views soon in the book. So we're getting close to that. So this is kind of an introduction to that, but I think it's more than that, too. What else is being warned about? Yeah, so meaning you're in danger. <laughs> You need the gospel. Uh, Your sin has condemned you. So there's that kind of warning as well. Uh, You could also look at it as just positive warning uh, in the the church when we're preaching, when we're teaching, when we're uh, meeting with one another and encouraging one another. Sometimes that involves sin and confronting sin and saying you need to come out of this sin and repent because it's leading you down into further and further sin and sin leads to death. So there's also that kind of more positive, encouraging way to warn each other, uh, to keep each other accountable. I think that's well included there. All right, teaching. What's the teaching? What are we teaching? Don't overthink it. Yeah, we're teaching the mystery, which is Christ, which is Christ in you, which is the gospel, which is the word that was revealed before but not fully explaining everything in the Old Testament, and now we're seeing the full picture in the New. All of those things are what we are teaching. Uh, So we're teaching each other how to, uh, we're pointing each other to Christ. We're teaching each other how to live godly lives by setting examples for one another and admonishing. Uh, All those things fall under teaching, and some of them border on uh, warning as well. Uh, But we don't just warn, we don't just teach, we do it with all wisdom. So Now we're introduced to really a, a new word that's going to pop up a lot in the coming verses, this idea of wisdom. So what is wisdom? Yeah, that's a good definition. Yeah. Any others? Knowledge replied. Yeah, similar idea. Right. Good. What's the famous Proverbs line? Well, that is a Proverbs line. That is important. Yes, that's not the one I was referring to, but yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's the one more I was referring to, that the fear of the Lord. And if you're fearing the Lord, you're going to be repenting of your sin. You're going to be seeking to please him in what you do. You're going to be seeking after his word and learning from it. Uh, So that idea really fits well here with wisdom. Now, what is wisdom in the eyes of the world? Is it the same thing? Is fearing the Lord the beginning of wisdom for the average non-Christian? What's wisdom in the world's eyes? Education. Yeah, maybe it's education, or you get the people who are like, that's book learning. You need to learn real life, right? You get that side of it, too. Um, so what, is, what would the world characterize as wise? What would a wise person look like in our culture's eyes? Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, school of hard knocks kind of thing. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's in the normal current culture kind of way to view it. Uh, maybe they're really good at posting platitudes on Instagram or, or Facebook. You know, the uh, you need to be happy and uh, uh, seek after joy and Oh, all the different phrases they use. I'm not good at remembering those because I try to ignore them. Um, Anyway, so that's the current culture. But what about the culture in Paul and Timothy's day? Would they have described a wise man in the same way that the American culture does today? Right. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think in a lot of ways there'd be similarities, but in a lot of ways they did focus a lot more on the philosophy side of things. Uh, what, you know, what are your, uh, what is noble? What is valuable? The, more the ph- philosophical side. But then even among them you had was it the Epicureans who focused on good times, living it up. So in a way they would fit today very well, but you also had the Stoics, uh, people who are more serious. People who were lost in thought, and all they did was sit in the Agora in Athens and talk about philosophy. That was what they considered noble, and that was wisdom. But was that biblical wisdom? No, we'll get to that more in a few verses. Uh, so I want you to, to think about worldly wisdom versus what biblical wisdom is as we go forward here. So in everything Paul does, warning and teaching, uh, they're doing it with all biblical wisdom, all godly wisdom. The point being, teach you to fear the Lord so you can serve and love him. That's the purpose here. All right, the rest of verse 28. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of all that teaching, of all that warning, of doing it with wisdom? Answer, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What do you all make of that? To present everyone mature in Christ. Perfect. Yeah, I can see where they got that. Yeah. It was in New King James? New King James. New King James, yeah. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. Right, which is a very biblical illustration. We'll look at some of those passages in just a minute. Uh, But what does a mature Christian look like as opposed to an immature Christian? And at what point do you go, okay, you're no longer an immature Christian, you're a mature Christian? Is there, a, is there a line somewhere? Never be totally mature. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at some point you should be mature. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Even though you're saying how much sin is still in your life and how much you don't deserve and how much more you need to learn. Yeah. All right, so we're really seeing three options here from y'all's answers, and I think these are good. So one, it's impossible now to be completely mature. That's what Bob said. So there's no point where you'll be perfect if you use the New King James translation. Uh, the other is that at some point you should reach maturity. Uh, I'm trying to think how to write that. I'll just put possible. As in at some point, not perfection, but at some point you can be considered mature in your faith. Okay, so that's an option. And then the last option, did you all pick it out with the conversations and different comments from people? So it's impossible now, it is possible now, and then there's one other. In process, process. good, yeah, we'll just put in process, I like that. Right, so there's a sense in which this could just be a scale. You are to be continually maturing and not stuck in the elementary basics of the faith for your whole Christian walk. That there should be an increase, because there's not some point where, okay, you're mature. you don't have to do anything else. We know that's not true. You'll never be perfect, as Bob said, in this life. Uh, and yet there is some sense in which you can reach a possible uh, level of being more mature in the faith, of being solid, if you will, in the faith. And so, I don't know, I guess in process is kind of uh, applicable in both of those. But uh, I think mostly we're to look at the in process element. But it is possible to be mature, because otherwise Paul and Timothy would be toiling for nothing, If it was impossible, they wouldn't be doing it, right? And so, of course, it's impossible to be perfect in this life, but that doesn't mean it's impossible to be mature as a Christian. All right, let's look at some maturity passages. Uh, Let's go to 1 Corinthians 3 first. And then once we look at a couple of these, I'll let you all tell me what you think. So 1 Corinthians 3. And I'll read one through part of three. Is everybody there? So, 1 Corinthians 3, I'll start in verse 1. <clears throat> but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. Did y'all catch that? What are the two states being described there? Being contrasted by Paul. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I I asked that question poorly. Yes, that's that's another contrast. I was looking at spiritual uh, and flesh fleshy, fleshly. But you're absolutely right. That one is there as well. So you get this contrast all the way through. I can't address you as spiritual. I have to address you as of the flesh. And, and those parallel with the, the infant versus mature. All right, so that's one passage. Now go over to Hebrews 5. So, Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll read 11 through the end of the chapter, through 14. So, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Since he is a child, the solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. so this kind of helps fill out some from the first Corinthians passage what's going on there? Right, no, you're absolutely right. and, and there there's two key uh, phrases in here that I think outline that well. At the end of eleven, uh, wait, yeah, yeah, the last phrase of eleven, what how does Paul describe them, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews describe them? Dull, dull of hearing, although for some people that may not have been a wrong saying. Anyway. Uh, yes, dull of hearing. Uh, hearing what? What's being implied? The word, the word of God. The truth that they need to live day to day. They are dull of hearing it. All right. So there's one. And then you go to 13. What are they unskilled in? Yeah. So again, we're talking about the word, how they should be living, what they should understand about God and their relationship with them, uh, that they need to be feeding off the word. Apparently, they're not getting it. They're dull of hearing. There's a lack of understanding and a lack of, clearly, a lack of care to understand. They're not worried about it. They're not concerned about it. They're just doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. They may have believed with joy. They may still call themselves Christians. They may go to church every Sunday. They may go to a solid church every Sunday. And yet, somehow, they're still dull of hearing. Uh there's a, a drought of the word, a drought of God's word. So that's what we're talking about really. Alright, now we can go back to Colossians. Well, sure Like she said about the preachers that are they're, they're they're just milking cookies type of preaching. That's how we have gotten to where we are accepting sin into the church. You know, mhm Right. Right. So we're not just unskilled, but we're sinking into the, the death spiral of Romans. Yeah. 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 righteousness um, sort of implies that there's a lack of holiness, pursuit of righteousness. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so now when we go back to Colossians, we can plug in those things we just read, because I believe we're talking about the same thing. Paul says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, does he say perfect? I know in the New King James he does. But does he say perfect as in literally spotless in this life? No. I think what we're talking about is that you understand the faith and that you're seeking to follow after Christ, that you are uh, focusing on the fear of the Lord, not as in trepidation. Uh, unwillingness to come near him because you're so terrified, but that you honor God in everything you do, that you seek after his word and seek to feed upon the truth, um, that you seek to care about the truth. Uh, so I think that's the maturity that we're talking about, and I think it is definitely in process as well, because it doesn't sound like from the Hebrews passage like they were always dull of hearing. They had to come to the faith at some point. They had to say, oh, well, we're, we're Christian at some point which at that time in history was not an easy thing to do. It was not a popular thing to do. So they had to have some level of commitment, and yet at some point, they stopped growing. They stopped caring. They stopped seeking to go any further in their faith. And so I think this is very much a process where you get past this stage of milk and cookies, as Israel keeps saying, and you get on to the meat of the word. You get on to the meat of what it means to live as a Christian. Uh maybe even to the point where you're struggling for the sake of the gospel like Paul is doing, maybe not to that extent, but to that you're willing to do that. Um, you're willing to give all you have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to get beyond that. getting beyond just the surface level of learning the Scripture you get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, being confronted by your sin, uh, being willing to talk to others when they need help or direction or encouragement, uh, those aren't easy things. So, yeah, it's not comfortable to talk about those things with people or to address it in your own heart. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And so I think what we're seeing here is that Paul's purpose is to uh, continue preaching the word, continue feeding these churches, continue writing Scripture, so that they will be maturing, so that they will be going through this process, so that ultimately, when they die or Christ returns, in what state are they going to be found? Maturity. And so, if you want to take perfect and you want to cling to that uh, translation, I'm not saying you do, but just if. Since you have the New King James, you could anything there. If you want to really cling to that, well, you could take it just as understanding that we are maturing to the point where, when we die or Christ returns, we have been presented mature before God, that we have completed our journey in maturity, so to speak. I but I think it's very much an in-process thing too. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and that just depends on the Greek word being used. So like our sanctification word, we do get that, that from that continual, and that, that's exactly correct what you're talking about. This word is teleos, so it's, it's the word often just translated end or complete. Uh, so the, the, the idea, and that's why New King James even goes with perfect, because the idea you're completing the journey, that's what they're, that's the end goal. That's the why they're translating it that way. I like maturity better. Uh, I think that's what most scholars prefer here, um, that you are. So, I mean, it, it does involve the process, because without the process, you won't get to the end mature, right? And so it's kind of both and. It's the process, but it's also the end point, because you can't really fully separate them. Any questions or thoughts about that, or did I just confuse you? Yes, yeah, so it's really an already, not yet. I mean, we can be mature now as we're resting in the gospel and growing in it, and yet the completion points down the road, uh, the fullness of it. Yeah, so that's great. All right, anything else before we move on to 29? I'll just say as a, as a pastor, 28 punches very hard. <laughs> that, that ending, I think there was about two or three weeks straight where I've just thought about that present everyone mature in Christ. Um that is, um, anyway, you could think about that all day long. All right, 29. So presenting everyone mature in Christ, that's the final phrase. And then resulting, building on that, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I thought God matured us. What is Paul working towards? If God's the one maturing us, why is Paul working so hard? Why is he toiling? Mm hmm. So it's a both and, isn't it? Because toil is not an easy word. That's not, well, I feel like I put in a decent day's work. Paul is struggling. And that's another way to translate this word, this toil, as struggle. He is struggling for the the sake of pushing for the gospel, of preaching, of helping people grow in Christ. He is struggling towards that end. He toils, he struggles. All his energy. But then there's the acknowledgement of whose energy it really is. And so this is where we sometimes can get mixed up. with like, oh, well, it's God's job to work in sanctification. God's job ultimately to do missions work, and to, to preach the gospel to others. I mean, he's the one who's going to really save them. We can't save people, right? And so we can sometimes kind of separate it and have this idea where what we do doesn't really matter because God's doing it all. And really, that leads you to uh, it's called hyper-Calvinism. And if you are a hyper-Calvinist, there's no reason to do missions. There's not really a reason to pray because God already knows it, so what's the point? And it can lead you down some bad roads. On the other hand, You can go the other direction with it and say, well, it's all about what we do. We got to work harder so it gets done. We got to make sure we're saving people. Notice how I said that. So you have two ends of a spectrum. God's going to do it all or it's all up to us and God doesn't do anything really. Are either of those correct? Obviously, no. (laughs) And so here we see both aspects. Paul is working himself to death, you could say. But he's doing it according to God's strength. He's doing it according to how God has called him to work. He's doing it through the strength of the spirit, not according to his own. And yet he is pouring out everything he has. And so you see this both and this God working does not mean that we don't work. It means he works through us. And so that means that we can be confident that as we work, God is accomplishing his purposes. And so you see both sides to a spectrum there. On the one hand, We must fully and completely turn ourselves over to God, offer up our works to him and be humble because we know we can't do it on our own. And yet, on the other hand, we better be working hard because that's what God has called us to do. Not thinking we're going to do all the work on our own or or accomplish God's purposes on our own. What are you all's thoughts on that? How How do you how are you working that through in your minds right now? (laughs) <laughs> um, it sort of implies that we Right. No. I, at least in college and in the seminary, I like to tell myself do your best and leave the rest. <laughs> as in, work as hard as you can, but leave the rest up to God and just. I haven't really thought it through much past how I meant it, so it could still be taken wrong. I'm not sure. Uh, but that's what it, the phrase that I always had in my head in school. Uh, but it's a very difficult balance, and it's very easy, and I know every one of you, and I, I do it too. We slip off of both ends of that spectrum at times. Think, Okay, well, I'm working hard on these sermons. People are getting saved this week. <laughs> well, I should be working hard, but God's the one who's going to use it for something if he wants to. Uh, it's not up to whether or not I worked really hard or not. I'm called to do that, but God is the one who's going to work through it or not. Right. Right? Yeah, he could just like zap everybody and everyone who's elect, he boom believe without ever hearing the gospel. but instead, he uses ordinary means: um, preaching, um, sharing the gospel with people, talking with them, relationships where you can share the gospel. He uses us, and therefore we're called to work hard, to go out and evangelize, to build relationships with people, believers and unbelievers, trusting that God is going to work through those things, and actually seeking his help and asking him to work through those things. Um, And so it's a very difficult balance, one which we should constantly be examining ourselves on what we're really doing. Are we working for ourselves or are we working for God? Um, Am I turning these works over to him and asking his blessing on them and to work through them? Or am I just assuming if I do the work on my own, meaning not in his strength, God's going to move. We have to work in his strength, not our own, but we are still toiling. All right, any other comments on that? There's a lot there. I mean, it's a whole sermon topic. Well, I think the end of that verse before we tackle chapter 2 is very encouraging. So you're, you're toiling, you're struggling, you're giving it all you have, and yet as you do that, as you're laying those things before the Father as you work, he powerfully works within me. So there's the promise. You work hard as God has called you to do in the way that he's called you to do it, and he is working powerfully in you doesn't mean if you go out and you're doing it right that you'll convert 50 people from standing on the street corner, but it doesn't mean God's accomplishing his purpose, whatever he wanted to accomplish through you and whatever it is you're doing. So that's the the thing we have to keep in mind. All right, chapter two, which is really just starting to build on these same ideas. Uh, Let's read one through five, though I doubt we will get through one through five because we don't have that much time, but someone would be willing to read chapter two, verses one through five. All right. Thank you, Jane. So go back to verse one. Is this a new idea or the same idea continuing? Yeah. Bob, what were you going to say? Yeah, it's not new. It's the same thing. He talks about his toil and his struggle and what he's doing, revealing this mystery. And then it's just almost like just adding for emphasis. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that lay out um, to see you. So he is working hard for the purpose of the church. He is working for you who's hearing this word. Uh, that's the point of what he's doing. He's not. Uh, he wants you to know it, too, so that you'll be encouraged by it. And so they may not have seen him. Some of them didn't see him face to face, apparently, but that doesn't really even matter in the end. It's by his encouragement, by his works, he wants them to, what effect does he want for them in verse 2? Yeah. He wants their hearts to be encouraged. And when you see heart in scripture, what part of the human body or soul or whatever is it referring to? The cardia, just the physical part? I got two things. I got soul and emotions. Is that what you meant? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> it's really the full being. I mean, it. Obviously, we're embodied souls, so our bodies affect our souls and our emotions. But really, all of us, our whole being, uh, that he wants us to be encouraged in our whole being, and that we would be knit together in love. Now, how would knowing that Paul is struggling for them and knowing about this mystery and the point of the gospel, how would that knit them together in love? Yeah. Right. Right. And we don't know how severely the Colossian church and the Laodicean church was struggling. We don't know in what ways, but I can tell you they were. We know that they were because they believed the gospel at this point. Uh, so they're suffering in some way even if it's not to the extent that Paul is. So it's an encouragement that Paul, the great super apostle, as they might think of him in their minds, he is suffering for the gospel too. And so there's encouragement there. Uh, It's also just the gospel is unifying. The world does not have true unity in any point. It may look like there's unified fronts, but when there's a unified front, it's because they all agree on they want to commit the sin. It's not true unity. But in the church and because of the gospel, there's true unity. So as a learn about Paul as they learn about the gospel, they're going to be knit together in love. They're going to be built up understanding more about the body of Christ. I think it also goes back to Paul's repeated use of the term mm-hmm. everyone at the end of chapter one, because they if look at like the pagan mystery religions of the time, they identified certain people with the belief. Mhm. <laughs> the go-getters. It's for everyone. should be Because everyone. Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. And and something's going to build on that really well in just a minute in these verses too. Just continue to expand upon everything you just said. Any other comments on that? That knit together in love. Now, we hear God is love all the time, and, and sometimes you may even bristle at that because of how often it's thrown against Christians, or, or at least by Christians who have no evidence of any uh, true faith in them, where they're completely just like the world, and they'll say God is love, right? And so we want to bristle at that, but at the same time, God is love. I mean, that is a true attribute of God, and so we're knit together in that love, and we do need to remember that. Um, Exactly, and that's why when I hear someone say that, I automatically assume that they're the basically the world and that they're espousing something like uh, uh, like gay marriage or something like, and that's what they mean. Well, God accepts everyone, God is love, so yeah, yeah, very similar, yeah, right. And this is where we need to be quick to affirm what Scripture says, which is that God is love. That is one of his attributes that we should be happy about and joyful about and talk about, all the while distancing ourselves from improper uses of it. And that's the difficulty. Right, right. And that's one way to balance it out, but not abandoning that we are knit together in God's love, which is true. And so anyway, that, that's a difficulty I have because I hear those statements all the time and they bug me to no end. And then I see this and I don't get excited when I read it. It takes me a minute to get excited about it. I have to question, why am I not excited about that? Well, uh, the world has made my mind. No, you sin, it's on your own heart. So my own heart has got jaded in some ways, I guess, from hearing things like that. All right. So being in together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance And this is a long phrase here, full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So what are the riches of full assurance? What are the riches of full assurance? Peace and confidence. And salvation in God. Okay, good, good. Any other thoughts? There's a lot of words there, aren't there? <laughs> so all the riches of full assurance of, and the of is kind of giving you the description of what that full assurance is, what are you to have full assurance in? Understanding and Knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So understanding and knowledge of Christ, if you want to shorten all that and sum it up. Uh, uh, Understanding and knowledge of Christ. So notice how we have like every area lumped in here. We have love. We have emotions. We have a state of being in God in terms of that we are connected to that perfect, infinite love. Uh, But that our assurance connects with that also understanding and knowledge. So it's like we can't separate our rational thinking We can't separate out our emotions. We can't cancel out anything. We have to put it all together. It's all encompassing, and in that we have a full assurance. I think this connects very closely with assurance of salvation as well. What is assurance of salvation? Yeah. Yeah, and so assurance, uh, some people have a really firm, confident assurance of faith. Some people struggle with that their whole life. Some people uh, have a strong assurance of faith who shouldn't. Some people have a weak assurance of faith that should have a strong one. And so it's something that can, we can grow in, this assurance of faith. How could we grow in assurance of faith according to this verse? In the Word. Understanding and knowledge of God and His promises and how our heart and our emotions and our souls are feeding off of that or not. And so assurance of salvation, uh, my old pastor always described it as, I'm going to draw so this is going to be bad, but a three-legged stool. All right, so we've already had one of these legs mentioned, and that is the promise. The promise of the gospel says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All right, that's the promise. Scripture says, if you trust in Christ and give your life over to him, you will be saved. Outright promise of the gospel. But what are the, some other ways in which we can have assurance of faith from Scripture? I'm just going to put adoption for that. Uh, don't think of it in like the you know the uh, what's that called? The golden chain of, of salvation. Don't think of it in that sense right here. Uh, Think of it in the sense of that sense, as Dave just explained, that you are a child of God, that the Holy Spirit bears witness. Good. So that's two legs. What's the third leg of of the stool from Scripture? Fruit. Right, and that's where the the people who normally say, go back to that phrase, God is love, often how the culture uses it, or Christians, is that they can do whatever they want because God doesn't care because he just is a cool guy, kind of how they mean it, right? Okay, there's no fruit going on in their life. They might think this part. They don't understand what the promise is, if you ask them normally. Uh, So you can have assurance in some of these areas, or all three of these areas, and we're just... We're supposed to grow in these as we move forward in our faith. So if we're stuck in sin and we're not going forward, we're not showing fruit, okay? We need to be concerned. We need to go and plead to Jesus to help us uh, to grow, to bring us out of this sin, okay? We're growing in fruit. Sometimes this is the part that seems the most, uh, I don't want to say disconnected, the most maybe difficult to perceive for some. Uh, This inward sense that you're a child of God, you can have great fruit, Uh, You can be clinging to these promises, and yet you don't have this warm, fuzzy feeling that you're God's child sometimes. And I know solid Christian pastors who struggle with this part. And so they might have a weak uh, assurance of salvation in this one of three, but they're clinging and continue pursuing Christ. So they should have a good assurance of salvation still, even though they may struggle in that one point. Right. It's not. And the fruit, was it really fruit or was it what they wanted to do or they thought it made them look good or it made them fit in with the people they were with? Uh, so you can, right. And did they misunderstand the promise? Did they never really grasp hold of it? Or maybe they knew what it meant, but they didn't ever care enough to actually give their lives over. And so, yeah, so in these ways. But this is how... Uh, at least in reform circles we talk about assurance of salvation if you go through the confession it gives all three of these categories for assurance of salvation and I think that if you keep those categories in mind it helps you understand what Paul's talking about with all these words here so the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of Christ you want to summarize it that way um, that you are clinging to and understanding and growing in the knowledge of Christ that's maturing right there all right, thoughts or comments about that? Anything else? All right, well, hearing none, let's go into verse 3. So, last word, Christ. So now Paul's going to say something specifically about Christ and who he is. Someone could read verse 3 again for us. Are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you starting to see these words reappearing in this section. Yeah, wisdom and knowledge—they come back around. So what are we supposed to be growing in? Wisdom and knowledge. Uh, how was Paul and Timothy? How are they teaching everybody and warning everybody in twenty-eight, one uh, twenty-eight? Yeah, so they're presenting the knowledge of Christ and him crucified, uh, and they're doing that with all wisdom. So you see these words reappearing and coming back in again. So God's mystery, who is Christ, and in Christ are all wisdom and knowledge. So how are you going to grow in wisdom and knowledge? Well, you have to go to the source of it, the only one who is perfectly wise and who has all knowledge. Um, If God is the source, then there is no other place to find it. Meaning if you're not communing with him, then there is no way that you can ever find wisdom or knowledge in any form. So we get this grand explanation, this grand really Christological statement about who Christ is as the source of all wisdom and knowledge. And uh, What's the word Paul uses there in verse 3 to refer to wisdom and knowledge? Treasures. When Scripture talks about treasure, how is it normally being used? Okay, good. So it can be a future treasure. So that goes back to the hope of glory we've talked about in Colossians. Good. How else is treasure used? Something of great value, meaning what do you want to do if you know of some treasure with great value? There's a whole parable about this. Right, you do whatever you can to get this great treasure. Uh, this great treasure, and you think, oh, okay, well, it's joy in this life. It's an infinite blessing in this life. It's being given the entire world right now to rule over for your lifetime. Nope. All these hidden treasures are hidden in Christ, and it's wisdom and knowledge. Does that mean if we go to Christ, we can be the biggest nerds and know-it-alls in the world? Is that the knowledge we're talking about, and the understanding we're talking about? The fact that it's split with understanding, wisdom separate from knowledge. You know, knowledge is, you know, like what we said earlier. Head, mhm. Mm. Hmm. That's not being a, a good or good or To act like that. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. No, that would not be a good thing. And that's not the knowledge we're talking about. Because what's it coupled with? Knowledge and? Wisdom. wisdom. And, and what was the way, I think, Carol, I think you described it this way, maybe Bob, you did too. You take the knowledge and then biblical wisdom is applying that knowledge. And so it's not that we're just learning everything we can and we're walking uh, systematic theology, but that what we are learning from Scripture, what we are learning from Christ, that we are applying to our hearts and our lives. that it is changing how we are living. That's the treasure. Right. The treasure is something, is it's not just knowledge. It's knowledge that through the Holy Spirit can be applied to our lives, sanctify us, and, there's a word, mature us to the point that we are mature and it com- brings us the glory completed. And so it's a very productive wisdom and knowledge. Um, mm hmm. Right right, right. yeah. Uh, don't just know it. Understand it and apply it to your heart and to your life. I go over to Proverbs two, and this is just rounding out everything we've already said. really what we'll see in these verses, we'll read 3 through 6 in a second, is that this was not a new idea, this whole concept of learning from God and applying it to your life and growing in that wisdom and maturing. The mystery that's revealed in the New Testament is that the source of all of it is Christ. That's what the mystery is. Uh, but back here in Proverbs, the, the content, if you will, is not any different. Just the source is more vague. But we'll starting in verse 3. Uh, we'll start in verse 1, I guess. Uh, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And it continues on, but do you see all those themes we've already talked about? Um, Really, Colossians is just taking, in a way, it's just taking these same verses and saying, and the source is Christ. Uh, That is the revelation now. Uh, Any thoughts on that? All right, I'll take that as a no. All right, let's see. We've got a few minutes, but not much time. Hmm. Let's put a pause there, because just as I had way too much to say in those verses, I've got way too much I want us to talk about in the last two, uh, four and five. So we'll have to put those on hold. Any closing thoughts or comments before we close in prayer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just speaking very openly, that's one of my personal struggles, especially when I was in seminary. It's like getting fed with a fire hose and you're supposed to drink it all and apply it. And just sanctification can't be sped up that much. I mean, <laughs> there's a certain limit to what you're capable of understanding and growing in. Uh, and so it takes time to really take all that head knowledge that gets dumped on you and try to apply it and And really dwell and meditate on it, uh so that's a personal struggle of mine from the past and still continuing uh yeah <laughs> that's true, yes, yeah, mhm. Mhm. Right. Right. But we never no. Yeah, yeah, and that's back to that already not yet. We are maturing and we can be mature now, but we won't be perfectly mature till later. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. The of, right. Uh, salvation through Christ. Yeah. Because that's what all of the, the ceremonial stuff was, was a, a representation of. What was right. The lesson is everywhere. The tutor, as if you want to call it that, is all throughout. But it's getting to the final picture. And yeah, that's difficult for some. Uh, but really, when the Spirit's at work, I think over time you see it. And sometimes it takes longer. It's like it takes me longer to see and understand something. So I better close this in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you that you are maturing us through your word. I do pray that you would help us to strive, to struggle, to toil for the sake of the gospel, that we would uh, be relentless in our own pursuit of holiness, uh, encouraging one another, uh, but also in being a witness to all those around us. Lord, that you would grow us, that you would produce fruit in us, uh, that we might bring you glory. Lord, help us not to let up or, or to, on the flip side to do things in our own strength, but to work and to struggle, but to do it according to your strength. Lord, help us learn what that means and help us to meditate on how to do that. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.